In the city of Detroit, the name Toco is both respected and feared by anyone with the slightest knowledge of its underworld history. They are the survivors of a bloody prohibition war that conquered their enemies and established what is now known as the Detroit Partnership. They are a special breed. Not so far down the bloodline, a great-grandchild is born into the Toco clan, but he's known as a defado, a man whose lineage is not full Sicilian. Even worse, his Sicilian lineage comes from his mother, making him ineligible to ever make a real name for himself in the Toco regime. But this man is a Toko and will grow up strong in the ways of Cosa Nostra. He will serve his family and strike fear into the hearts of anyone that is crazy enough to challenge him. With fists like steel and a disposition to match, he will use his genetic fearlessness and a vicious cunning to pursue a life of crime that is hard to top. This is the legend of Alan Gunner Lindblom. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Time feuds of public enemies bring a rain of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. We'd see each other out and about, uh, nightclubs, whatever, and he was always getting in a fight. You know, we all would have a little bit to drink, and then afterwards when the clubs would pour out, you know, there's Al with his shirt off, getting all mad, wanting to get in someone's face. <laughs> I probably kept him out of jail a lot because I always like was a guy, come on, let's go, Al, let's go. You know, you don't need the trouble. You know, Al was one of those guys that like, you know, we all, everybody knew Al. Whenever we see him out and about, you know, he would just come around, start talking. There was a um, little place everybody would go to after the bars let out at 2 o'clock in Michigan. And it was a little, little 24-hour Coney Island burger joint. And it would always be a line always be a line out the door in the parking lot, you know, and me and a buddy might, might be go, taking a girl out on a date or something or meet some girls at the bar, take them back. Hey, let's get a bite to eat. And we're sitting at the table. Al, he would cut in front of the 20 people that are waiting outside in line and he gets to the front of the line and he would just take a look. He would take a look at all the tables and look around and see who he knew so he could just jump in, you know? So we would see him like that and we'd be like, oh boy, you know, cover, <laughs> cover eyes a little bit. We're like, Al's here. Al, <laughs> you know, he's going to come over here. And sure enough, you know, he'd come and pull up the seat, start eating everybody's food, talking like he owned the joint. So that was always like, uh, you know, one of the things about him. He, he was always on the go, um, didn't care. And we just laugh about it, you know. So that was my interview with Joe. Uh, Joe was a friend of Gunner's way back in the day, and he was a pretty meaningful part of his life. I know Al thinks a lot of this guy. So I got a hold of him, uh, just kind of talked to him and got some background on uh, Al and just a little bit different take. It was interesting to get a friend's perspective. And like I said, the guy plays a big role in his life, as we'll see coming down the line. So it's pretty cool, and I appreciate him doing that. So we had a pretty big week. Yes. Re yeah. went to the Mob Museum. Yes, yes. In Las Vegas. So tell us about that. Um, well, first of all, it was great to see Vegas starting to bounce back. We, we go there often enough that it's still not as busy. Um, especially on a Friday and Saturday night, but it was just, it was just nice to see the city starting to heal and get back because that's how they make their money there. But we did take time out to go to the Mob Museum, and it was an unexpected surprise. It was really great. I was worried, even though I looked at the website, that it was going to be, you know, kind of it's Vegas, you know, um, a little yeah. hokey, and it is not. This is a legit 
National Museum. It's like going to any other museum. It was fabulous. The exhibits are fabulous. We went through one and actually did an autopsy on uh, the guy Joe Pesci played. Spilatro. Yeah, where they found his body in Indiana. So we actually got to do an autopsy on him, and we did our fingerprints and DNA. and. Wasn't that Casino? Yeah, yeah who says Indiana doesn't get enough love in the Yeah, movies? that's where he dumped the bodies. <laughs> Good cornfield. Of course. It was just really great. I hope we get to go again someday with you two. And, uh, oh, we went to a speakeasy, too. There's a speakeasy there. And you get like the password and you go through the, you know, the door with the slot and the, that they open and you have to give them the password. And we bought some hooch at the speakeasy. So that was fun. Bill, I, I did get you a present. That's on the way to your place of business. I bought you a mask for the COVID. And it says, never rat on your friend and always keep your mouth shut. And I thought, <laughs> that speaks awesome. volumes. And then I bought a... I bought a sign for my kitchen. Um, it's it's an ode to the greatest movie line ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave the gun, take the cannolis. You know, speaking of presents, it must be my week. I went to a Mardi Gras party. Ah. And th- there's a couple people there that were fans of the show. I've heard every episode. They listen to it when they drive to work because they've got like an hour nice. commute in Indy. And, uh, which is funny because that's always what I pictured when we started off. I didn't picture people sitting at home with their headphones binging this show. You right. Know, I pictured people with an hour to kill. And like, how am I going to pass this hour while I got to drive and stuff? So I, I go to the party and they said, uh, hey, we got a present for you. And right away, the guy comes in and he presents me with this meat hook. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and it's, it's a giant old authentic meat hook. And I did hang it right over my bar, like right over the fridge. So my bar is uh, front and center, and uh, it, it's got a prominent place. So this uh, jazz music can only mean one thing. Now, for the Partners in Crime shout-out. And here it is. Duffy and Jay Cook, thanks for the meat hook. I had a few communications with uh, Kayuchi, who's kind of fell off and disappeared. Well, he's busy. He's busy. Yeah. Well, I was hoping he right. was busy, because <laughs> he kind of fell off YouTube, you know, and I was like, man, I hope he's not quitting or something, but hardly... He is working on a film with his daughter, and he's got a nine-year-old daughter, as do I. He's like, you know, it's not a mafia thing, you know, it's it's my daughter. And so he had, sends me a link to her on Instagram, which is my my thing. I don't do Facebook and all that now, I just do Instagram. Her name is Sabella Cayuchi, and if you go to her Instagram page, she's got 65,000 followers, and she's a little badass. She's not just swinging and chopping and kicking, you know. She was trained by her dad, who, by the way, if you don't know, Kaiuchi is like a Kaisai Chinese boxer, and he was trained by some of the world's best, so he's he's a deadly fighter. But anyway, this little girl could not just swing her arms around and stuff. I mean, she could, like, jump four or five feet in the air and knee you in the side of the face. Mm. I mean, just like, she's she's just a That's little a terror. That's a skill and every I, woman needs. Yeah, yeah. And she's nine. She looks like she could already whoop some Good ass. Good for her. So it's pretty neat. And, uh, yeah, and they got this movie coming out, and I'm looking forward to it. It's pretty cool. So the real karate kid. Yeah, she's the real nice. deal. Good. Good for her. All right, partners in crime, welcome back. We are in episode three of Gunner. Sitting to my right, we've got the incredible Zach the Zip Griffith. Good to be back, good to be back. And as always across, we have Anne-Marie Giuliano back from Vegas. Yes, good to be back from Vegas. Love the town, though. 
Love it. And the very model of consistency. Back, I don't know how many weeks in a row now. <laughs> Two. <laughs> At the control boards, working like a dog, we got Joshua the intern. Three weeks, it's the most. Was it three? <laughs> could have been three. <laughs> All right. It could have been. Hey, tell us about the, the slot machine conspiracy. Oh, we had a lot of luck at a couple of different slot machines that were right next to each other. They were dubbed swiftly taken every time, care of. Every time you hit, it would say, time to play the wheel of excitement and fortune. And, um, <laughs> and, and so my husband, my husband's had a few drinks, so he's singing this tune the whole damn night. But we were hitting on it. We got up and left and, I mean, everybody who played these damn machines were hitting. And we go back after we went out to dinner with some friends, and they're out of order. <laughs> I bet they were. Yes. I'm sorry, but you did that voice so well. Oh, well, I heard it. I heard it a lot. I mean, we won a shitload of money. We paid for our entire trip. Really? We paid for our trip and all the money that we spent. And that's including, like, all our meals, our Ubers, everything. Yeah. And we are still planning to go May 11th and see Ori, so... Well, we'll have to see if those machines are still there. Yeah, I bet they won't be, or not in that shape. But did no. anybody slap you in the head to win the autograph book? No, um, nobody did, but I go under an assumed name when I'm there. I check in under a different name, so that could be that could be why. I gotta post more pictures of you so people can spot you. I'll send you some to post. Plus, the odds of like the twelve people that actually listen to the show being in Vegas at the same time as you is probably pretty slim. There was, but, I'll tell you what, our friends were out there. I'd like to do a shout out to them because I haven't seen them in a few years, and it, they were gracious enough to drive down from Utah to to visit us so we could have dinner together but they are now avid listeners to the show well this is a breach of protocol but let me fire up the tune <laughs> so shout out to nicole and brandon cleverly from utah all right thanks for listening that's a great all right we got a lot to get to so let's get started as gunner continues to navigate the murky waters of the street life one of his most reliable streams of income flows from the increasing demand for anabolic steroids. So the steroid game. Yeah, I, you know, I got involved in the steroid racket when I was pretty, really young, actually. I was like 17 years old. You know, one of those kids who, who was extra skinny, wanted to put on some muscle, had my homeboy Gino. Good looking guy, real muscle bound, all the girls liked him. And in my mind, I'm like, I want to be like him. You know, the girls, they definitely noticed the guys who are working on, you know, different different culture, different generation today. It's probably not as big a deal today, a guy to be buff or super athletic or super alpha or whatever. But in the 1980s, when I came up, Detroit, he said Detroit 1980s, listen, that culture there is eat or be eaten type of mentality. So you're either going to be an alpha, you don't have to be the toughest guy around, but you know what I'm saying, you're gonna stand up for yourself and be an alpha, or you're gonna get walked on in life and, and be this pussy and whatever. So. One of the reasons I started taking steroids is so I wouldn't have to fight so much. Because honestly, when I was skinny and small, 16, 17 years old, you know, I get a lot of these older kids and these, these tough guys, they just want to be disrespectful or, or start a fight with me or, you know, just try to pick on me or bully me, whatever. So I had to fight, which when I did, I'd end up beating their ass 
I mean, I, I can say I've only lost two fights in my life, and both times I got jumped. So, I mean, most of the time, if somebody messed with me, I'd either punk them out or end up freaking beating their ass or usually knocking them out. After to be 18, 19 years old, I kind of mastered the art of chin shots and knocking people out. Kind of became famous for it. They actually called me a Sandman, and that's why, because it put them to sleep. I, I did some steroids when I was like uh, 17, 18, but not that much. Everybody thought I was on them. I always thought it was kind of a, I don't know, private inside joke for me to make people believe I was on them when I wasn't. I thought it was kind of funny. You know, everybody's like, yo, because I sold steroids. This is what I did. It was one of my rackets, one of my best money makers to selling steroids. And people are like, yo, when you're on, Al, when you're on, Al, because I look pretty good. And I'd be like, all right, man, I tell them this, this, and that. You know, and that's what you want to get. And I'd usually tell them the stuff that I'd make the most money on. Sometimes it was fake steroids, which still worked because as long as they were working out and eating good, they were still making gains. They're teenage kids, so they're going to blow up whether the stuff was fake or not. A lot of the time, the stuff was fake. And my dealer, a dude named Joe DiMaggio, he, you know, he would tell us what was fake and what was real. The old Dago freaking dude knew my uncle. He'd be like, yeah, this is it. So I could get this fake stuff that looked real, looked exactly like the real stuff, but it had like peanut oil in there or pills were fake. And I get that for you know, $25, 30 $40. You could sell it for $100, $125, $140. So that's where I made a ton of money. I was like the littlest guy in my gym. No joke. True story. It was a very steroid-infested gym, Muscles Gym in St. Clair Shores. It was like the most steroid-infested gym in America. And the bus that I was part of, actually, was they claimed in the papers, was the largest steroid ring in history, which was... They call it international steroid ring, which was, you know, because there were steroids coming in from other countries, then going to, like, San Diego, then to California, then all these other states, including Michigan. These wise guys were involved. You could probably Google it. I'm sure there's articles about the big bust that happened there. Took me a while, but I dug this up from the Detroit archives, and it's, a, it's an old, old story. It was actually kind of hard to find, but it details exactly what he's talking about, so I thought we'd go ahead and read it. So I'm going to go now to our stale news correspondent, <laughs> Anne-Marie Giuliano. Yes, um, this is from the Detroit Free Press. Out of the UPI archive, August 10th, 1992, federal agents crack big steroid ring, 37 charged. Detroit federal officials Monday unsealed 17 indictments charging 37 people with crimes linked to distribution of real and phony anabolic steroids to enhance athletic performance, mostly through barbell lifting gymnasiums. It resulted from a two-year undercover operation by the FBI, Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Food and Drug Administration. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first undercover case ever involving the distribution of illegal steroids, and it is also the largest case ever to be charged. At a news conference behind a table piled with pills, syringes, and 21 rifles and pistols, authorities said an estimated 4 to 5 million dosage units were uncovered with a street value of up to 20 million. One defendant, James Philip Dugin, 27, is a co-owner of Powerhouse Gym in Suburban Centerline. All of the weapons were seized with materials taken from Joseph C. DiMaggio, 29, of Roseville, Helteroff said. And this is Juice Man Joe. Hopefully no relation to the great baseball player. While use of real anabolic steroids is potentially deadly, DEA Chief William Kuntz said counterfeit doses are a tremendous health risk because of unsanitary preparation. Sophisticated labels, some done with a computer, made it hard to tell the real from the phony substances. Markman said Canadian authorities arrested three other people with $100,000 worth of steroids in their possession as a result of the investigation, and other suspects are in Mexico, the source country for most genuine steroids. 
the government charged DiMaggio bought various anabolic steroids from Carmela Vasquez of Rosarita, Mexico, and distributed them by mail or common carrier to other suppliers in Michigan and elsewhere. The indictments also said Mark McNeil of Sarasota, Florida, assisted DiMaggio in manufacturing fake steroids to be sold with the genuine article to increase the profits of the illicit steroid operation. You know, and there has always been, you talked about the other Joe DiMaggio, the, the baseball great. There's always been like mafia rumors about that guy. If you Google it, that's one of the things that comes up. Really? Why? Because he's Italian? I, I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I'm not defaming the guy or anything. I'm just... <laughs> I mean, it's not a far stretch, but DiMaggio, if you read his stuff, I mean, the real, the, the, the baseball player, I mean, he always seemed like a stand-up guy. I, I just said that people are talking. That's all. I'm but, not talking, but people are talking. <laughs> My friend, Jerry, I can't say his last name. He was, he was the connection for me. And when he went away to school, I was like, yo, hook me up with the guy, you know, the bar, the plug, the, the, the guy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Willie, Willie. And he, he actually um, go, ended up going away and didn't hook me up. So now I have all these orders and all these people who want steroids, but I can't get them. I, cause I, I, mean, but I know the, the, who the man is. I just can't. I don't know. So eventually I went to him in the gym and said, you know, I'm Sal Toko's nephew. I think you know my Uncle Sal. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, Brother Pete. I said, yeah. And I said, so we started talking. We were in the gym locker room. I said, hey, man, the stuff that Jerry was getting from you was for me. Yada, yada, yada. I said a few different things. And he's like, hey, okay. I said, so now I got these guys who want some. And, I, you know, Jerry's gone. I'm like, he's like, listen, here's my number. Give me a call. Come over. And I did. And I started dealing with them and started selling steroids and made a freaking ton of money. And then ended up getting busted. So it's worth mentioning that the steroid gig was not bad money. He was pulling about 500 to 600 a week on top of his drug sales, which probably doubled that, right? And he's still pretty young. He ends up buying his grandparents a $10,000 Hawaiian vacation during this time. And he's also buying clothes, jewelry, and all that stuff for his friends. And he even bought a new motorcycle and gave his ninja to a buddy of his. So he's kind of living large. It's also worth adding that his supplier was a ginormous wise guy, Juice Man Joe. It's not the Joe that I've been interviewing, right? Anyway, Joe had his hand in other things, so he took a liking to Al, and uh, I don't think Al mentions this, but he ends up teaching him things about like valuing diamonds, watches, golds, you know, how to fence things, and so he teaches him a lot more than just the steroid business. I ended up getting set up by a dude who I ended up doing two hand-to-hand -hand deliveries. That's actually a crazy story. This dude really had no idea nothing of who I was saw me at this nightclub. I used to buy weed from him a couple years before because he was one of my plug's cousin's friends. And so it was a you know, three degree separation, but I knew the dude. He was just a hustler from, from Roseville on the east side, kind of a scummy lower middle class area. His name was Jerry. And I so I see him at a club one night. He's like, what's up, man, dude? Damn, you're getting big, bro. He's blowing up. Da, 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 da. He's like, man, you think you can get some steroids for me? And, blah. and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, that's what I did. So I said, yeah, here's my number. Give me a call. And the long story short is he ended up introducing me to some dude who was a cop, who was a fat. And they ended up busting me. So I got two hand-to-hand -hand deliveries. The crazy thing about that is I ended up, I saw the guy, just to let you know that I have a freaking heart. I'm gonna finish telling this story. Years later, must have been like six, seven years later, because I was still pretty young. I saw him away going to the gym with my workout partner, who's a big old dude named Mike Kane, just got out of prison. So we had to run in the store to get something. And I'm sitting there, he had a brand new truck, one of those Harley Davidson trucks, real fast one. I'm sitting there playing with the radio, car pulls up, guy walks in, whatever, I don't pay attention. 
Mike comes out and he's like, you know your boy just walked in the store. And I'm like, what boy? What are you talking about? He's like, I'm not going to say the guy's name. His name is Jerry. I won't say his last name. He said, uh, Jerry, and his name. And I'm like, get the frick out of here. He goes, yeah, it's in park right there. <laughs> and I said, all right, listen, I'm going to get him. He looked, there's a kid in the car. There's a little girl in the car, like a seven, eight-year-old girl in the car, waiting for her dad who just went in the store. And I said, Mike, all right, listen, bring the car around. I'm going to get him. And so Mike kind of looks at me and goes, you sure? My plan was to just demolish the dude. He not give him a chance. As soon as he freaking walked out of the store, just wasn't going to give him a chance to even to blink nothing. He would just come out of the store, and there I was. And I was going to pulverize the dude. And Mike says, all right, bro, freaking, if that's what you're going to do, he's like, just remember, there's a freaking little girl there, man. Just, you know. And I looked at him. I said, no, it doesn't matter. Turn around. So right at the last second, I'm like, oh, man, just go, just go. I really want to get into it, <laughs> what happened, but... He was caught later on. I, I had I had mercy on the dude because he had a daughter sitting in the car right there, and I just didn't want her to grow up having this horrible memory of her dad getting freaking pulverized into a bloody hamburger pulp by some freaking dude. You know what I mean? I just didn't want her to see that, so we left. Well, this first time, I don't know if we actually met, but we knew of him. You know, we uh, we worked out at a small gym in St. Clair Shores, Michigan. You know, there, there was a bunch of groups of people. Hang, it's like the gyms now. People hang out with little cliques, little friends, and... You know, Al was younger than me by a few years, you know, so some of the older people there, we were always like, who are these kids? What are they going on? What's going on? But Al was always like, he was the loud guy at the gym, as you can tell. He always had something to say. After a while, you work out in the same place, same time, you get to know each other and stuff. So, you know, he was, uh, I just knew him from the gym. That's when we first met. He was skinny, you know, he's always, he's always been like a skinny guy. I always made fun of him for that. You know, he was, he always talked about, you know, his fast metabolism, not being able to put on weight, that type of thing. <laughs> You know, it didn't matter to him. You know, he looked in the mirror, he saw Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, so. And he still does. So, <laughs> I'm just jabbing him right now because I'm sure he'll probably hear that. So, I do these bodybuilding shows. I end up going to these bodybuilding shows. And my first show was kind of a big deal. Like I said, I had my two cousins training me and they did my diet and did my little steroid regime and all that. And I was basically super over dieted and, and like kind of I was ripped up but I looked great I was in great shape and I went to the show and had like two carloads of my boys come with me to, to the show and my girlfriend and a bunch of her friends my mother I think my sister was there a bunch of people it was like two three carloads of people and I literally thought I was going to win the show so it just goes to show you how freaking stupid and naive I was I mean my first bodybuilding show but it was always called the Great Lakes Show or Great Lakes Open which is a multi-state competition like a state of Michigan plus Ohio and Illinois I think and Wisconsin and all that too there's 17 guys in my weight class, and I ended up taking fifth place, which was you know, not bad. I can't complain for your first bodybuilding show. I took fifth place. It was I was super ripped in this best shape of my life. Although I think I could have been better if I was bigger. If I hadn't over dieted and over trained, that's a whole other story. I just feel like I overdid it and it shrunk down. But nevertheless, I freaking look pretty freaking amazing for you know for me. Just a couple years before, I was just skinny, wiry, freaking punk ass kid. Now I'm on the off season, 190 pounds. Was perfect six pack, so I was uh, at the show though. I dieted down, I got to like 160, which is way underweight, in my opinion. Steroid, the steroid game, by the way, after I got um, busted, uh, uh, put on probation, I was kind of knocked out of the game for about I don't know a year or two when I was on probation. But I mean, I was selling steroids again before I was even off probation that quick, and just because there's too much money in it, I couldn't walk away. And I just had to get a connect, and the connect came. Then I had a guy in Mexico, and blah blah blah, just kept going. Kind of pretty much never stopped selling steroids till the day I got locked up. 
It was just one of those things that was very consistent. I always had money come in from it. There's always a couple of customers here, there, or the other. You know, as long as you're at the gym, you know, people kind of know who's who, and they're always asking me. And you know, even if it's a hundred bucks here and a couple hundred bucks there, it's still free money. So, so I played it. If you're someplace and you're having some trouble with somebody, Al's happened to show up. All I have to do is walk up to him and say, "Hey, Al, just keep an eye over here, will you?" He was always alert when it came to that type of thing. And if something were to happen, he'd come flying out of left field and he was there in a second. Although Gunner's fits of rage are public knowledge, his activities in the underworld are anything but. Members of the Detroit Partnership are unilaterally clannish and secretive. And if one of them is not, well, they don't last long. So the things you have to remember about Detroit is the secrecy. In the history of partnership, there's only been one government informer, and that was a guy, I think his name's Nove Toko. So I'd ask Joe if throughout all their adventures together, I'm like, surely you knew that Al was part of the Toko family and that he had this mob connections, right? Like you had to know. And he's like, no, you know? And by all accounts, Al never bragged. He never talked about that. He's like, we hung out, partied. He goes, but we're in our 20s. I didn't ask. He goes, I knew Al had side things going on that were none of my business. But no, absolutely never said, like, I'm a mob guy or families of Cosa Nostra. Nothing. He goes, nothing. Totally tight-lipped about it, right? And there's a good reason he didn't. Detroit is very, very unique in terms of the Cosa Nostra in regards to the fact that it's very, very quiet. I don't know how to explain it, but culture is different than other families around the country from what I have noticed. You know, a perfect example is... When I was in prison, my cellmate came into my cell. Now, I didn't talk about my my mafia background very often. Very few people. Unless a guy was kind of involved or something, I might talk to him a little bit. But my, my cellmate, who had been my cellmate for like a year, a good dude named Ed Burley, he comes into my cell with a book. It's called Motor City Mafia. He hands it to me. He says, yo, I got this off the yard, man, for eight bucks. You know, just I figured you want it. You know, it's about your family. And I kind of took the book and I, I had heard of it. I'd heard it had been published a few years before, and when I heard of it, I was just like, I was kind of disgusted by it, you know, just disgusted by the fact that somebody had taken the time, effort, and energy to expose the family and make a book about it. It was just like almost disgusting to me. And so I just like looked at him like, he's like, yeah, just give me the eight bucks. And I'm like, yo, I'm not buying this freaking book for eight bucks, bro. And eight dollars in prison is a lot of money. That's like a half a month salary. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of support, so I didn't and have any support so i was like yo i don't want this freaking book and he's like oh, man come on bro i'm like i'm like and i felt bad because he wouldn't got it thought i was gonna be happy and so i ended up giving him five bucks for it and keeping it and i didn't, they didn't open it up for years didn't i kind of flipped through it and was like saw pictures of family members and people i knew and uncles and cousins and stuff like that and i was just like oh, you know whatever i thought it was very taboo wrong to be holding that book in my hand it felt wrong and so I threw it in my footlocker for years. And then I ended up riding out to another prison and meeting this cat named Dagotone, Anthony Cerullo. He's the only Italian mob, made mob guy in history of the Detroit Italian Mafia that was convicted of murder. And it wasn't really even a, a mob-related murder. It was over a gambling debt. He got into it with some dudes. Some dude called in muscle from New York to try and kill him. And he ambushed them and killed them. And there was a girl there. He didn't kill the girl. And so she ended up testifying and he ended up going to prison. He held water, never cooperated. The feds tried to get him to cooperate and he didn't. But moral of the story is that book was something that I found violated the very fabric of what I was groomed and taught and trained to, to believe in, which was just shut the F up. Never shared nothing with anybody. And here we are with a book. 
And I didn't bring the again. I didn't bring that book out for years. Till me and Dego Tone sat in the day room and started talking in Italian a little bit and like sharing pictures. And he was telling me stories and blah blah. blah. That's when he told me Jackie the Kid would be the next boss. And I said, No way. I didn't believe it. I was like, There's no way Jackie's gonna be the next boss, man. I don't really know the guy, but I just didn't believe that he would be the next boss. That Jack Loney would be. But in hindsight, if you look at the options, I, I realized that yeah, he was probably the best option. So, anyways, moral is silence. You don't talk about it what you're doing with anybody. If you're in a crew of five guys, but you're all involved in a scam or a racket or a robbery or whatever, the only people you should ever talk about that rob, scam, racket, robbery is with are those five guys. Never anyone outside of that five. Never talk about, oh, I'm connected to that guy or this guy. Now you look at the, the culture of like Philadelphia mafia, the Instagram mafia, and they're just out. They want everybody to know. They want everybody to know. I'm connected. I'm a wise guy. I'm a maid guy. I'm a mafia guy. I got a crew. I'm a mafia. And now the FBI and the local cops and everybody's like after their ass. Because, you know, now you're taking your face and rubbing it and shit. So now they're like, they got a heart on for you. They're going to get you. They're going to get you. Ask John Gotti. You know, I mean, Joey Merlino is the, is the, the king of this. And he's, he's freaking, all he does is rub shit in the face of feds. They're all after him. He can't make no money. He can't make no moves. Hide in Florida right now. You know, when he should be in Philly since he's the boss. Different cultures are different. And, and I understand, like New York and, and Philly, you have these large communities of Italians, these small, like, enclaves, and everybody in there, who, every screw-ups, messed-up kid who's a thieving, scamming, lying, conning piece of dirt, they all migrate towards these freaking guys, the guys in the suits, the guys in the freaking track suits, the guys in the at the little social clubs, the guys who hang out on in front of these freaking little rest dive restaurants with the freaking tables up front, and they play cards, smoke cigars, and they yell for guys, you know, we want to do this, go do that, and do that, and they always got a bunch of little minions around, and they're letting everybody in the neighborhood know, including the cops. This is who I am. This is what I do. You know what I'm saying, and so these kids who are troubled youths, they migrate towards that. Well, it doesn't really work like that in Detroit. Same thing. Like, the, the, the bosses do it all the same thing, but they just really keep it much more secretive. You know what I'm saying? It's much quieter. It's much lower key. If they see a guy who's kind of like me, was a troubled kid, had problems, whatever, they might kind of feel him out for years. And that's what they did with me. Tested me for years. Until one day, one said, hey, man, Alonzo, you, you want to make a buck, man? You like to fight? You're a tough guy. You know, this guy's going to give me a problem, man. He's, you know, he owes me money. What for? I asked for what for? He says, don't worry about that. This guy owes me money. A couple thousand bucks. He's late. You know, he's got to give me a couple hundred a week, but the guy's been avoiding me for a while. He's starting to piss me off. Do me a favor. Can you go, you know, let him know that I am not happy. You know what I'm saying? Give him a little tune-up. I said, yeah, okay, I got that. I can do that. Uh, go do that and grab a guy by the throat, slap him around, come back with the money. Say, here you go. And then they give me a few hundred bucks. And see, and I'm good at it. So they start having me do more things. And I got this poker game. I want you to work this poker game. You know, security. You know, these are kind of street guys coming in here off the streets to play poker. You know, I got a lot of money coming with a gun. You got to take their gun, check it in, yada, yada, yada. And this is where I'm going. Well, what happened was, there was a guy. I'm going to say his name. But he was kind of a hangers-on, wannabe, freaking guy. Got this fat, loudmouth dude. In my opinion, he was kind of goofy. He was a little bit of an earner. He was in the dope game. Coke and, and weed was his thing. He he sold pretty heavyweight weed. And by that, I mean, you know, like 10, 20, 30 pounds. And my uncle liked him. I don't know why. I don't really know why my Uncle Pete liked him. For whatever reason, my uncle liked him. And the few times I hung out with him, you know, they told me to meet, meet him up at the club or whatever. And I'm just like, this guy's goofy as hell, man. He's just kind of a fat, dopey, goofy dude. He shaved his head bald. He was maybe 30, built like a pear. 
Uncle Pete Sr. is freaking, and it's loud too, always loud, laughing real loud, loud as boys. <laughs> and he's like telling the girls, come here, honey, and grabs their arm, come here, honey, come over here to pop up, pop up, one of those guys. And I was like, dude, stop freaking grabbing on the girls, man. They, they think you're a fat slob, bro. Back the F up. In my mind, that's what I'm thinking, but this is my Uncle Pete's friend, so whatever. Well, one day, I get the word, and here's what happened. The dude had been in the strip club, the one that Nino was the manager of, and he'd been at the table drinking. He had another guy with him, some Chaldean, who was like connected to the Chaldean Mafia, which is very powerful and very symbiotic work with the Italian Mafia. But this dude, the loudmouth dude, he was out of pocket and out of line by telling the Chaldean that he's connected to the Italian Mafia. So he starts dropping names, including my Uncle Pete. Now, normally, nobody would know except the Chaldean, and the Chaldean probably wasn't going to run back and say anything about it. It would have been forgotten about in five minutes. However, there was a girl at the table, all right? Her name was Jody. And she overheard the dude saying, yo, I'm connected to Pete Toko, and I'm connected to this guy and to that guy. And, and I, you know, my name wasn't involved because I was, you know, nobody else. But he started saying names that were above my uncle and stuff that, you know, I'm working with Pete Toko and blah, blah, blah. We got this going and that going and this going. And I think one of the things that they talked about that they had, were working on was a uh, chop shop, a stolen car racket that they had going on and the Chaldean was freaking interested in it he's like yeah 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 I can, you know, I can work with you on that blah, blah. so now he's saying oh yeah I got you You know, I know Pete, Pete's got this connection to do this and that guy you know, I'll talk to Pete about this and, blah. and he's talking like it doesn't even matter he's talking right in front of this girl and the girl's like what the frick are you kidding me so she walks away goes and gets Nino the manager and tells Nino yo I know you're friends with so and so and so because, you know, the, the, the mob bosses come in there. When they do, you get royal treatment. You know what I'm saying? They, they clear out the best tables, best booths, send over the best girls. They may even bring you in the basement, kind of like a VIP party. But the, they don't like that. The mob guys don't like that. They want to be upstairs, just like everybody else. You know, looking at the girls and freaking having a bottle of beer, maybe. Or just playing around. They don't want to freaking be in the basement, you know what I'm saying, with the private party. They want to be seen, too. You know? They got treated like royalty in there, and anyone who knew or paid attention would see those guys for whatever reason are getting special treatment but anyways so nino tells his boss and his boss was a very very bad dude and that dude eventually went back to my uncle and said listen this guy he's your problem he's your problem he's your friend he's your problem handle it so my uncle this is now for everything i'm saying after this beyond this point is clear speculation i have no knowledge or recollection of what happened next until what happened with me so my belief is that my uncle because he had friends with some bikers some dangerous outlaw bikers he went to them and said listen here's a contract on this freaking loudmouth dude you know handle your business um you get them you get x whatever it is i have no idea and they freaking said okay and then about i don't know a month later my uncle calls me in real frantically. He said, get over, get over, I'll talk to you, whatever. I'm like, okay, whatever, it's summertime. So I shoot over to my grandparents' house. That's where he was. And uh, he met me there. And he's like, listen, you got to go freaking identify this dude, man. The guys, the hitters, they dumped them off in an abandoned house in the garage, in the D, down in the hood. Those dudes, you know, I'm not sure they knew the right guy or whatever. He's like, you got to go, you know, verify this. It's the dude. You know him. I'm like, fuck, man, you crazy, man. You do it. He came and gave me a look. He's like, listen, asking you, dude. I'm telling you. I'm saying a freaking, you don't have an option here. Go fucking find out if it was him. That's it. He's like, freaking, and he told me the street. I'm not going to say it. He said, there was a red garage. He said, they 
dump them in the garage. It's an abandoned house. It's in the hood. It's a street between this block and that block. All right. So I know exactly what he's talking about. Just like one of the worst ghettos in Detroit, which is one of the reasons why I didn't really care about going there because I knew is, you know, it was, it was the hood, man. You could, you, could, you could have a straight up gun battle on the street, and cops probably wouldn't even show up ever. And if they did, it wouldn't be like for like four hours. So it just that's how bad it is. In Wild West it was. So I got a Mustang GT, got a tinted out Mustang, it's all, you know, with a sound system in it, rims on it, it's all tricked out. And I'm ripped down in the hood, and I'm down there, and I'm going down this block, and I'm looking for an abandoned house that's got a red garage. And there's abandoned houses all over the block. But I knew what side it was on, too. They said it was on the south side of the street. So I'm coming down the road, looking kind of slow, I was cruising like 20 miles an hour looking for the house, and there's abandoned houses all up in the block, but it's summertime, there's a lot of people hanging out. There's people, everybody's on the porch. Like almost every other porch, if the houses that weren't boarded up or burned down, because there was probably 25% of the houses on the street were boarded up or burned down or abandoned, maybe more, 25, 30%. And then the rest of them were just like, you know, we're like five families lived in, you know, this ghetto, you know. And so everybody's hanging out on the porch, they got music playing, they're out on the porch smoking blunts, drinking 40s, just hanging out. Here I come, white boy just pulls up in a Mustang. I finally see the garage. Pull up in front of the house, pull up right in front of the driveway, like I blocked the driveway off, jump out of my car, and there's two freaking black dudes across the street on a porch just looking at me. And I know they're thinking, what the F is that? I'm like, who the frick is this white boy? What, what's he doing? Pulling up across the street from us, and, and I look, and I walk around the front side of my car so I could walk up the driveway, and I look at the house that's right next to the house, where there's two more dudes, and, and like a chick, and they're sitting on their porch, got music playing, they're looking at me. And I know the same, they're thinking the same thing. What the F is this freaking white boy doing? He just pulls up in this pimped out Mustang, jumps out, starts walking up in the backyard of his abandoned house. Now, I don't get 20 steps and I smell it. I smell death, which is unmistakable. If you ever smelled dead bodies, it's been rotten for a few days, it's, you know it. I can't believe those people didn't know. Maybe they had called the cops, they didn't investigate, whatever. I come walking up to the garage door, it's open. I just kind of peek in, I see the dude, and I noticed right away the strange thing about it was he had two gunshot wounds in the head. The way he was laying was like he was looking dead at his head. And like one had gone through like a bumpy eye, came out the side of the head, and one was like dead center, came out the back. And I'm like, they freaking shot this dude twice in the head, man? Like, whatever it was, a big gun, did a lot of damage. Now I assessed this for like five seconds, and I'm like, okay, I'm not even five seconds, like one second. I just like looked at it, and I'm like, oh, that's bad. I'm out of here. Boom, and I ran out of there. I kind of just speed walked back to my car, jumped in my car, woo woo, jumped off, and I was gone. Went back, told them, yeah, that's him. They got him. It's the right guy. They got the right guy. And so for years after, my uncle started calling the dude Bullethead. And I remember asking him, like, why do you keep calling him Bullethead? He's like, he took two to the head. The first one didn't do the job. I'm like, that's what they told him, I guess. And the first one to the head, it didn't, didn't, he was still breathing, so they put a second one in his head. It was a 45 caliber pistol. And anytime anyone at the, after this, would, they'd joke around. Like, if a guy was talking a lot, like, if he was talking too much, they'd be like, man, this guy's going to end up like Bullethead. I'm telling you, if he doesn't watch what he's saying. Or or they'd say to you, don't end up like Bullethead. People are like, he's Bullethead. Bullethead, you don't want to know who Bullethead is. Bullethead took two 45s to the head for running his freaking mouth about who, who he's connected to. And so... That particular incident, I was young, you know, I was real young. I was probably 18 years old, 19. Whatever the case was, it um, it left a mark on my psyche. And so whenever I was with my civilian friends and I wanted to, you know, maybe mention that I was doing some stuff with my Uncle Pete or whatever, I just shut the F up. Just, you don't need to be telling them nothing. They don't need to know nothing. Because they're going to, if they do, a lot of my friends, man, you know, they're, they're kind of wannabe wise guys, hustlers, whatever themselves. And... You know, I knew them enough to know if I told them that, you know, I was, you know, 
working with my Uncle Pete, you know, we're doing mob stuff, I'm not tied, not connected, my uncle's this guy and that guy, they would run around bragging, they'd be like, yo, you know, I'm with Al, man, Al's connected, you know, Al's uncle's this guy and that guy, and they're gonna be running their mouth, and what's gonna happen is, it's gonna get back to one of these mob guys, and then they're gonna get, I'm gonna get called in and be like, yo, what's going on, man, this freaking kid said he was talking to this kid, and this kid said that he's heard from you that you were, you know, dealing this stuff, you're talking and dealing with us, and you got stuff on the street that you're doing this and that, it's gonna get back, and then what? Two things gonna happen. Either I'm gonna get killed or they're gonna get killed. And it's more likely they're going to kill them, not me. Because they're just gonna be like, listen, we got one run in their mouth. They got a bullet head, good to go. You know, it's your problem. Handle it. Get rid of them. And then he's just another number dumped in a freaking alley or dumpster or abandoned house or, you know, God knows where. And so I decided I'm not gonna share none of it. In the end, Bullethead was a learning lesson that I took to heart all the way to the day I got locked up. Nobody knew, man. Very, very few people knew. I, I had a very secretive double life and i had a beautiful home nice new cars uh fiance couple of pets i mean i looked to be on the surface living a normal life and that's the way it's supposed to be i was looking at the jack tocos and the tony jacks and the tony tocos and um paul carrados and all these guys and i'm thinking yo i'm trying to be like them have a nice house have a vacation home have a nice car have toys have a good life and, and live these guys who feel like they need to go out there and project, by the way, I'm in the mob, everybody, look at me, I'm in the mob. That just says, you know what, you're on borrowed time. You're limiting yourself. You're going to end up dead because you're running your mouth too much, or you're going to end up in prison because you're running your mouth. Either way, that ain't how it works in Detroit. I want to just ride out the wave and die an old man free. You know what I'm saying? Haven't made my millions a free man, but that's the way the game goes in Detroit. You know, I knew that he always had a side hustle and he always had something going, but it was none of my business. Never went there unless it was something that me and him were doing together that we shouldn't have been doing, whether it was like doing drugs and partying and things like that. You know, so that was that was my my relationship with him. I didn't have any, you know, knowledge or anything about his, you know, his family. I know that, you know, he lived with his dad and his mom, I know, passed away um, when he was young. So my mother passed away when I was 19. Very unexpectedly, it was kind of a sad story. My mother had been mentally ill most of my life. You know, she'd be, it'd be lucid moments, but she was um, just heavily medicated and just mentally unstable, which was sad seeing your mother like that. And I have a lot of regrets in, with regards to that. Not spending more time with my mother, not appreciating my mother, although she was very capable of love and loved me very much. And you know, relatively normal, but she just never, she never got over the divorce from my father. And that kind of broke her spirits and broke her heart. But so when I was 19, she had an issue like she was bleeding. And so they were going to do a routine hysterectomy to fix it. And so she called me the night before, wanted to talk to me real bad. And I, she's like, I'm going to surgery tomorrow. I just wanted to talk to you about And I was like, you know, yeah, yeah, mom, whatever. You know, you'll be fine. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Just call me later after the surgery, blah, blah, blah. She's like, but I love you. And I said, I love you too, man. And I'll call you. Later. And that was that. And I kind of just hung up on her because she was constantly calling me. She would call me like freaking 12 times a day. So that was one of the weird things about her. I ended up going to a party and spending the night at this kid's house down the street who had a party. And um, give you an idea what a scumbag I was. I was passed out on a couch with some girl. And about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, I hear boom, 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 boom on the basement window. And I just knew um, it was something wrong with my mom. I just knew. And I kind of look up, and my girlfriend is looking into the basement at me where I was sleeping with a girl on the couch, curled up with a couch. And she says, your mom, your mom's dying. You got to go. And I said, you, you got to go. So 
I just threw the girl off and just ran. And we went to the hospital. My mother was brain dead. Was, they said there was nothing they could do to, to revive her. It was kind of the beginning of the fracturing between myself and my sister because I believed in God. And I really said to myself, Mom is too good for this world. She's an angel. She's so sweet and innocent. And she just deserves better than this world. So God took her. Whatever. Because we had to pull the plug. We had a decision to make. The crazy part was that they didn't have her on a heart monitor or a respiratory monitor or anything like that. And she was a woman who was heavily sedated on depressive medications and then just had a hysterectomy the night before. So they were probably on some kind of IV drip or pain medication, whatever. They didn't have her on a heart monitor. There was nobody monitor. And, and the nurse actually heard her stop breathing. Hadn't heard her snoring for in a while because she had been hearing her snoring all night and then all of a sudden she's like she's not snoring she went in there my mother was basically brain dead she stopped breathing they got her breathing again but she had her brain had died you know obviously there was a lawsuit in the making there but i chose not to pursue that what happened was uh you know she just went brain dead and, and we had to pull the plug and my sister was like you know i don't believe there is god i don't believe in god god would never take mom she's she's too sweet she was just and I said, there is a God. God said she's too sweet for this world. And so he's taking her home where she's going to have peace now. No longer in ill health. No longer crazy, essentially, because of my dad. She'll be at peace. So my grandmother ultimately had the, the last say on what would happen. My grandma Toko, and she said, pull the plug, which really kind of, in a sense, kind of really irritated me. But I did hear the doctor say in all his career, he'd never seen anyone return back to you know any semblance of normal after this much brain damage and you know sustained from lack of oxygen or whatever so i obviously i knew it was the right thing to do i just seemed like my grandma was a little too quick to do it but whatever so a couple days later it's funeral and it's at uh Binyasco funeral home, which is famous mafia funeral home every mobster in the entire city of detroit goes gets laid out there or Calcaterra, but this, I think Calcaterra and Binyasco are like their partners on some other ones but that one i think is just Binyasco. But I'd only been in there, I think, only one time before that. When you're a kid, they don't bring you to funerals. A lot of people have died over the years. I had been there one time before for my great-grandmother's death. It was the first dead body I ever saw was my great-grandmother. And I was real young. You know, I was only like, I don't know, four or five, six, something like that. And then the next thing was, you know, 13 years later for my mother. I was 19 years old. So I remember was, was a lot of interesting stuff happened at that funeral. One of the interesting things is like this guy was kind of, half-ass beefed out with I ended up showing up at my mom's funeral real early in the morning with his boy this big muscle bomb guy and um he came there early in the morning and he's like man listen dude freaking you know i'm sorry about your mother man is there anything i can do anything man you just let me know man i'm there for here's my number call me if you need me you know blah 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 anyway we became one of my best friends crazy irony there the other thing was that happened there was the fbi were there markham who's coming and going and I remember my Uncle Sal walked into this, like, point, like a cigar room or some kind of room. It's a, like a lounge in between two sides of the funeral parlor where there could be another funeral on the other side. So there's a lounge in between the two sides. And, and we had one side for my mother. But I think we had the whole place was closed down other than my mother's. But there's guys, people milling about. And all these are, there's a lot of high-level mob bosses in there. All of them are there. All of them. Um, you know, from the boss all the way down to numerous dozens of of street guys more than i ever had knowledge of way more i knew at that time who the boss was who the underboss was who the consigliere was i knew i knew tony and, and his brother i knew um a few other guys the carrados and you know a handful of upper level guys but dude all these freaking wise guys coming there and you know i'm introduced as my cousin they're all cousins 
and all their they're all like oh, this is cousin Angelo this is cousin Mikey and cousin Phil and cousin Chris and blah 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 these are all guys that I'd seen on and off over the years at graduations and a few weddings and stuff like that but I didn't really know them but it was kind of shocking to see them all coming to pay the respects to my mother you know which I thought was weird but I knew they were doing that only out of respect for my grandfather and my uncle mostly my grandfather so that was it so my grandpa and his body's all sat around this lounge and they're talking and then at one point somebody says to my uncle sale kind of comes in and whispers and keep in mind in this room is the boss the consigliere i'm pretty sure tony was there tony jack and there was like maybe four or five other guys and i hear him say you seen feds out there taking pictures and uh, they're like yeah they've been here all morning whatever whatever they, they said it in Italian, so they just assumed I wouldn't understand it, but I caught enough to understand what they said. And I said to my Uncle Sal, I said, yo, why are the feds here? Like, why are the feds talking? He looked at me and went, really? They want to see who's coming and going. They want to see freaking who's who. If they can get in here, which they had done before, and kind of take pictures and see who's talking to who's whatever, who's putting the biggest envelope in the freaking bag over there, who's, who's smoozing who. So that's just the family, bro, you know that. And I was like, it seems disrespectful, man. And I remember going out there and looking for him and I remember looked across the street and I saw a car with a couple people in it and I was like is that them and and then I, and I ended up going back in there and saying you know is it they're in a freaking like blue blah blah he's like nah they're in a freaking van across the street in the next building down in a van looking at his kitty corner so I went back out there and sure enough there's the van and there was a guy in it so I'm just like that's kind of disrespectful man I feel like you know going to my mother's funeral man let me put it like this I wasn't happy about that at all you know anyways that was a, a sad turning point in my life trouble is brewing on the horizon he gets wind of an atf indictment heading his way and feels the proverbial noose around his neck i was involved in um kind of a shakedown guy owed a bunch of money and we'll get into it you know but i ended up taking his gun collection in lieu of ten thousand dollar debt he owed us sold the gun some of those guns popped up in drug rigs a couple of them shootings they traced it back to the kid kid blamed it on me and we got word they were putting together an indictment sealed indictment i ran now about this time my sister had just graduated college she just finished her last semester of college which was the first semester of like 1993 maybe and i was living in the city when i found out about this indictment and my sister came home and she said do you want to move to new york or do you want to get a house or an apartment here in detroit and we can live together. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. I'll go either way. I, knowing that I'm on the run here, I said, New York, let's go to New York. So we didn't have a lot of money and some money in the streets, you know, people owe me for weed, people owe me for dope, people owe me for batches of steroids, people owe me for this. Everybody who was supposed to give me their money, you know, as soon as they found out that I closed up shop and I, I was running, all these people who freaking owe me money, man, nobody came through. Everybody disappeared. Everybody freaking didn't have it. Everybody said, you know, I was full of shit. So this is kind of the way the streets work. So I was only able to scrape together a few hundred dollars. But it was a very short notice. It was only like a three-day, four-day thing. My sister said, listen, we'll just go. And I didn't tell her about the indictment, but I'm pretty sure she knew something was up. She might have overheard me and my uncle talking about it. I think between us, we maybe had 2500 bucks which was not a lot of freaking money, you know what I'm saying, to be moving to New York City. I think that's about the time these two girls that I was very close with were ended up murdered, and that hit me really hard, and I started, like, taking pop and pill and pain pills that led to heroin. And then, and then, of course, I got off heroin. As soon as I got to New York, I cleaned myself up. So I called my Uncle Sal. I knew he had some friends, a couple of New York wise guys, had married Detroit wise guy daughters. 
And because of that, there were some friendships and business alliances. And actually, Jack Tocco was very close with Paul Castellano. They visited each other like at least every other year, but they were very close and very much the same. So like Jack Tocco was close with the Gambinos. And I'm not sure how my uncle was close with the Lucchese's, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was through a marriage. Um, it was either Troit guy's daughter married to the Lucchese guy's son or vice versa, whatever the case. I was young, I was only 20 years old. I didn't pay that much attention or really give a flip. So my uncle said, listen, this guy's name is Vince. He's a friend of ours. You got that? He's a friend of ours. I said, yeah, I got it. I knew exactly what he meant. You know, but he said it real quick. He's like, guy, this guy's name is Vince. Good dude. He's going to put you to work. He's a friend of ours. You got that? Friend of ours? And I was like, yeah, yeah, friend of ours. Okay, yeah, I got it. I knew what he meant. So that's how I knew was kind of where we were going. And then my, so it was actually my Uncle Pete called me and gave me the number and told me that, not my Uncle Sal. But he said, this is Uncle Bud. Uncle Bud was my, my Uncle Sal. That's what we call him, Uncle Bud. And, and then my Uncle Pete called me and said, yo, Uncle Bud, he said, this and tells me this he said, yeah i got that i said yeah so i get the number called the freaking guy i met him at a bar called brooklyn dodgers which i ended up hanging out a lot later on because it was basically one of the little bars in the neighborhood where all the freaking wise guys hung out people kind of hung out and they'd have friday saturday nights we'd have parties and hang out whatever i go to this bar like i'm walking in and big rectangle right on one wall there's nothing but booths against the other wall is a big long bar but there's a kind of a front area where there's several tables there's a few tvs hanging from the ceiling you know playing sports center and whatever whatever and then a couple of tvs above the bar and then in the back is like a darts pool table and some darts and then you go down the hallway in the back the bathrooms in the back so everybody's been in these type of bars brooklyn's full of them so i come walking in and i'm looking around i'm looking for a guy named finney so in my mind I'm thinking the guy is probably, you know, a short, stocky, fat Italian guy, you know, middle aged, whatever, which is, you know, I'm picturing a guy like my uncle. There's nobody in there, so there's two young guys sitting at a freaking table drinking a beer or whatever they're doing. They're like watching the sports center. And then there's one guy at the bar and there's a bartender. But the guy at the bar, he's got a, a brown full length trench coat. The guy looked like Gilligan to me. That's what I thought he looked like to me, Gilligan. I walked down, like, this is Gilligan looking, mother. this can't be Vinny. So, but he's the only freaking guy there. So I go walking up, and he's got a Gilligan hat on, too. He's got a, a weird, funny Gilligan hat, but it's, but it's beige. It's the same color as his jacket. At least he matched it. And I come walking up, and I sit down right next to him. And he's leaning against the bar, and he's drinking. He did drink. He was an alcoholic. I drank all the time. It didn't matter if it was freaking 10 o'clock in the morning. He was having a drink. He was always drinking. And so I sit down, and I'm like, Vinny? He's like, Al? Still looking forward. I'm like, I think he, there was a TV, and he was watching it. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, I do anything, really, man. No, it's just young kid. I don't know if we're going talking legitimate business here, or whatever. And he goes, anything? Guy don't look at me. He's still looking forward. I'm like, yeah, man. You know, do anything, really, for, for make a buck, man. That's what I do. Now he turns and looks dead at me and goes, anything? Yeah, man. I, you know, I I I do anything to make a buck, just about, you know. And he's like, okay, that's good to know. And then he says, listen, I'm gonna hook you up with these freaking guys. They're young guys. They're like you. They're little hustlers. They're going to help you make some money. I said, okay, you know, whatever. Like I said, I'd do anything. So he says, and basically, that's it. He's like, wrote down a number on a napkin. He said, here, call them later today or tomorrow, whatever. And they'll kind of give you the free, you know, they'll get you, get you in the game. He's like, everything you make, you got to kick up. You know, you got to report. Now, these guys told me, not, not him. He didn't ask me that there. But basically, they, we did have to kick up to him. And he was the boss. No doubt about it. He was the guy we reported to, whatever. But the funny thing is, so the next day, 
call these guys up and they tell me to meet them at this little restaurant in the corner like i think it was 83rd and 3rd avenue a little greek place i know that uh, they had good euros walk in real busy it was the middle of winter so it was you know cold snowy and i walk in there and um places jamming and i see, see these you guys which i know it's them i didn't know what they looked like but they said yeah we'll see you we'll know who it is i see these two young kids that are they're like 20 21 years old maybe 22 um one's a little chubby but a good looking chubby kid and the other one's like looks like a model italian pretty boy you know and they both got suits on and let me tell you something here's why i learned the difference between the culture of the Detroit La Cosa Nostra and like New York or East Coast La Cosa Nostra. This is true story and this is what made it so different for me. These guys lived for La Cosa Nostra. Like they wanted to be nothing in life but in the mob. That's all they thought about, all they joked about, all they cracked about, busted about. Everything was about mob, wise guys, this boss, that boss, this move, that move. All they talked about. That's literally that. You know, the hustles, all the little scams and rackets, it's just, it was all to position themselves to get higher up the ladder of the mafia. And they told anyone who would listen, everyone in the neighborhood, anyone in the restaurant, anyone around them, mom, dad, didn't matter, everybody, I'm connected, I'm in the mob, I'm a guy who's going to kill you or do this or that. They projected that. Now, back in Detroit, if a guy did that, he'd be murdered. He would be killed for that. In Detroit, it was the exact opposite. You were trained to be silent, to move in stealth, to never let anyone know what you did or what you do. If somebody wasn't involved directly with you in a particular racket or a scam or whatever it was, then you never, ever, ever shared that with anybody outside of those people. And the reason for that is because it was beat in your head from a young age that you never talk or share anything outside of the family. You never share knowledge of what's going on outside the family. And if the people who are supposed to know in the La Cosa Nostra in Detroit, they know. You don't have to tell them. You don't have to project it. You don't have to brag about it. You don't have to tell anyone. They know. They're supposed to know. And the rest of the world aren't supposed to know. And that's the way it is. And I, I can tell you personally, I've seen guys killed who are running around like these little New York wise guys. Like As soon as they got connected with a capo, or a guy who was like connected to a capo, they were quote with that guy, and then they were telling everybody in the neighborhood they were with that guy, and that guy that they were bragging about there with, it made him feel good. So now he kind of sits back in his little pub chair bar, like guy like Vinny, and he's got all these guys working for him, and he feels like he's somebody special because he's got all these young worshippers. Where in Detroit, that same guy would lean over and tell like a guy like me, listen, what we're conversation we're having, never repeat it. Ever with anyone ever I don't care if freaking Jack Toko himself the boss walks up to you and said hey what was Pete telling you the other day what's conversation you said you say nothing you know nothing because if you tell him he'll know you're soft and you'll be killed that's the thing they will test you to see will you crack will you talk will you tell will you brag will you and if you fail the test you'll be killed I know guys have been killed for that. I've seen it happen. That's the difference between like New York and Philly. I know Philly's a lot like the same. It's almost like they ask their culture to brag and say, look at me and I'm in the mob. I'm connected. I'm a mobster. I'm coming up on whatever. So when I got there, to me, this was like culture shock. I'm like, these freaking guys, man. Are you kidding me, man? We're in this freaking restaurant and we're talking business and they're laughing. They're joking you know, about this and that. And I said, what do you guys do to make money? And he said, they laughed. This is what he did. They laughed and said, Ah, don't worry, man. There's always ways to make money, man. 
we can always make money. Eh? And he freaking like elbows Vinny, elbows Tommy. He's like, ain't that right, Tommy? Uh, and like, yeah, 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 we get money all the time. Money's the easy part. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, how can I get some money? And I'm like, don't worry, bro. Simmer, simmer down, man. You know, we'll get you in the game, bro. And like, listen, man, we got this guy doing that. And I got this guy doing that. We got a play move over here. And, got the, and they're talking in like broad daylight in a restaurant about this. And I'm just like, what? Looking around like, motherfucker, are you kidding me? But I mean, I guess that's just kind of the culture they grew up in. You live in Brooklyn and Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, in that area. And you're, you're used to this, you know, wise guys coming and going and talking. And they're always talking something. That's how they do it. And so the first scam that they did was they handed me this, this little electronic device. And you said, hit the button. And then you hit the button and go, and then you hit the other button and go, and so each button represented the nomination of a coin when you put it into the payphone. So you walked up to the payphone back in the day and you pick it up. For example, I want to call my girlfriend in Detroit. I dial it and it would say, please deposit $14 and some cents. And then I have a bunch of quarters and I just keep going, dumping the quarters. And every quarter would go, you just keep adding quarters until it goes, and then the call will go through. I said, you got to be kidding me. This thing can really work? And they said, yeah, come on. Let's go call your girl back in Detroit. So I, we walk outside. There's a pay phone out right there on 3rd Avenue. We go through, and it tells me, please deposit $14.75. And then as soon as I do that, I take the freaking button by the quarter, put it up the phone. And after I get to $14.75, just click, bang, goes right through. I'm like, you got to freaking kid me. And I called my girlfriend. I'm like, listen, honey, let me call you back in a few minutes. I hang up and I tell these guys, so what do these go for? He's like, listen, we can get them for you for $90. He's like, you sell them for whatever you want. He's like, they last about four months, then the battery dies, and they're no good. You got to reprogram them, and it ain't even worth it. You just buy another one. But if, the, if you're a dope dealer, or if you're a you know, wise guy, and you're trying to keep your phone use down and you to a minimum, and you're always using pay phones and bouncing around, you got to use one of these because you may call across the city, across town, across whatever, across the state, across the country. They're like, we sell them for 200 bucks. I was selling for 300 bucks back in Detroit. So I call everybody I know back in Detroit and they all wanted them. Everybody wanted them. Everybody wanted them. I couldn't get enough of them. I mean, I, I could sell, I was selling like maybe 10 of these things a week. But at the end of the day, I was, you know, making like a G week on these things. These things were great. Sometimes we couldn't even keep up with the orders. Everybody wanted them. Every drug dealer wanted them. Everybody. So that was like kind of my first introduction up to a uh, scam introduction in New York. And then I got deeper and stuff and we were shaking down some Jamaicans they were selling pot in Brooklyn, and uh, there's a bunch of bodegas they had, and we went in there freaking, basically, I went in there with a couple guys, and they liked to use me because I was scary-looking, big muscle-bound guy. First time I went in there with a baseball bat, and I smashed up their counter in their record store, and, and I said, you gonna can't sell weed unless it's our weed, and, and they're like, no, come come on, man, we don't have no problems, man, no, we got we got our own thing, man, come on, let us play. I said, no, man, I said, I'm gonna come back next time, freaking, you're gonna take us weed, you're gonna, and, and that's it, you're gonna move it. So long story short is we went in there with a pistol, put a pistol to one of these Rastafarians' heads, said, here's the deal, man, next time you buy weed, you buy it from us, here's the number, come get it. And they did, so they're like, yo, and I'm like, well, they're like, how much the price, man? I'm like, the price is good, it's, weed's just as good, and the price is probably better. And they're like, okay, so they had to cut off their own and then they got another crazy thing is they got into it was uh Vinny had a bunch of heroin dens at Knickerbocker Avenue in Brooklyn and a Cuban and a Dominican had muscled their way in and like kind of muscled them out of the business and they, they had a big problem with that because they were making a fortune man Vinny and his, his heroin operation was probably like a couple hundred thousand dollars a month which you know that's a lot of freaking money and these guys came in and kind of muscled them out and my job was to find the dude which I did and I couldn't believe it when I found the dude. They tell me you got to go tell him he's got to stop, or sell our heroin or no one's. And I was like, dude, he's not gonna listen to me, man. Any guy cares. He don't care who we are. 
And they're like, well, listen, that's the order. You go tell them that freaking he shuts down or sells our dope and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, you're out of your freaking mind. I'm thinking this guy's going to get me killed, man. But at this point, I'm like, what else choice do I got? So I go there with the dude who was the translator because the guy didn't even speak English. He spoke Spanish. And I went in there and told him, said, listen, man, you got to understand that this is Lucchese's spot. This is what these guys do. They run this, this avenue. This is their dope. Anyone who comes in to buy dope, they're buying our dope, and that's it. You can't just muscle in here and start selling dope, flood the area with cheaper and better dope and think you can get away with it you know i have to understand this is business you can't just freaking do it bro you know how it works business you can't do it man you want to have a war with these guys and just kind of find a way to work together and the guy listens he don't say nothing to me he don't say you know smile laugh they he just tells the translators like no tell them that we're fine that we have our own connection and our own plug and we'll continue selling um what we sell where we sell it regardless and i was like okay so i went and i told Vinny that and Vinny was outraged flipping out angry flipping just crazy right like just turning red screaming and yelling spit flying his mouth ah, kill these freaking mother and stuff that he said wasn't nice and then uh, a couple weeks later i was told by one of my guys that they said they're like hey man did you see that freaking thing in the news man that they found that dominican dude freaking with a bullet hole in his head and he's lit on fire him and his girlfriend both burned to a crisp in the freaking field, you know, there where he was. And I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't hear that. But uh, apparently that's what happened. Was it related? I don't know. And it's very possible. But uh, there's that. I ended up freaking hanging around this, this one guy named Buckatelli, his name. They call him Bucky. He got tough with the wrong guy when I was with him one time. And freaking the other guy who was with, the guy he got tough with, pulled a knife out. So I pulled out a gun said yo back up and the guy's like who are you i was like nah, i'm nobody but i'm with him so you're not gonna freaking pull a knife on him without me pulling a gun i didn't even like the guy buck tell you to be honest with you it turned out the guy that pulled the knife and i pulled the gun back on him he was connected to a high level wise guy and that guy called my boss Vinny, and i had to go to a sit down where i thought i might be getting killed here and then they told me i went to the sit down i told him what happened and why i said listen man i didn't know who who your nephew was i don't know nothing i walk in this place's bakery with this guy who i don't even really like that much and he asked me to ride with him he said yeah let's go to this bakery and get some freaking cannoli i'm like all right man, whatever and then he walks in and he smacks the guy in the back of the head, there's two guys standing at the, at the counter. He smacks one of them in the back of the head, and his guy's hat goes flying off. And the guy turns around, and is like, "What the frick, Bucky? Punk ass bitch, whatever." And and then the dude, the big dude, Bucky, who's a big steroid uh, muscle head, the guy I'm with, he says, "I'll beat your ass, punk. Shut the f up, whatever." Now the guy with the kitty smack pulled out a knife. Now this guy looked like a killer. So basically, what they did is tell me to freaking that I got orders. These are orders. They're like, listen, you're going to tell freaking Bucky to meet you at, I prefer to not even say the location thing for, for a steroid deal. Because I told him, I got a case of steroids, man. Can you move it for me? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, meet me there. Boom, what happened? And they shot him seven times. And, and he lived. Guy freaking lived. He was in the hospital for like three months, but he lived. But the message was sent, freaking, you know, whatever. In a resolution to the ATF problem, friends of Gunner are able to convince the kid that it's in his best interest to recant his statement and confess to stealing and selling the guns himself to cover his gambling debt. So it thereby enables Lynn Bloom a relatively safe pathway back to Detroit. He's off the hook. It's 1996, and not a good year to be a Detroit gangster. It seems that sweeping indictments, ranging from corruption to murder, are being laid at the feet of Detroit's top leadership. Police interrogation rooms are becoming a veritable who's who of underworld villains. I thought you'd like that line, Zach. It's kind of Batman-y. <laughs> it is. I like it. Well, 96 was game tax. That's when the whole freaking, all the family got busted. So, I don't know, like 90-some guys got pulled in. Out of that, I think 11 were eventually officially indicted. Out of that, like four or five were convicted. 
boss was convicted. He got one year in a freaking fed joint for being the boss of the Detroit Mafia for 30 years. Obviously, we know he had the judge, and the prosecution knew he had the judge, too. They weren't happy about it, so they appealed his sentence and made him come back to get another nine months. So he ended up doing like 18 months or something. And it's funny because he, he guy got convicted of being the, the godfather of the Detroit Mafia for 39 years, and his, his sentence was... 18 months. First it was year, then another nine months. He used to write letters to my grandpa. My grandpa would read them to me. It was funny. And anyways, I got questioned in that. Four times over like, I don't know, six, nine month period, they brought me in and tried to, um, you know, they rattled me. They put me in a room. They showed me surveillance photos. They'd pay a wire transcript. They'd, they'd say, you were with this guy and, you know, the, this guy was freaking murdered. He was seen with you the day before and then he ends up freaking the next day with two bullets in him and, you know, they try to scare me, you know, you're, you're going to go to prison over this or we're going to put it together and when we do, you're going to fry and then, so if you want to start, you know, giving us information or cooperating, we start now, you know, the judge will be much more lenient, you don't have to worry, maybe you can even make all this go away and blah, 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 blah and I'd be like this, just sitting here going, uh-huh, uh-huh, can I leave? Uh-huh, can I go now? Can I go now? Do I need my lawyer? Do I need my lawyer? Like, no, you don't need a lawyer. I'm like, am I being charged with anything? Are you charging me? He's like, no. I'm like, we can hold you for four hours legally. I'm like, well, it's gonna be a long freaking four hours. Tick tock. I ain't talk. I ain't saying nothing. And they would freaking play hard asses with me and tell me I was gonna go away. They showed me video footage of um, me walking into the Hazel Park racetrack with a, with a duffel bag, right? And in that duffel bag was 1.7 million dollars. <laughs> and they go, what was in the bag? And I answered like freaking just like that. I mean, I didn't miss a beat. I said, sandwiches. I bring sandwiches to the guys, man. The guys were hungry. You got, got them sandwiches. They're like, yeah, sandwiches. Yeah, freaking the whole hierarchy of the Detroit mob was in the in the freaking Hazel Park racetrack that day. And you're bringing sandwiches. I'm like, yeah, was, I'm just a gopher, man. What the freaking I? And that money was going to Jack Toko himself. That was one of the few times I did have direct dealings with him. Um, not indirectly around the money, but the money I brought to Tony, Tony was bringing the money to him. That was to go to a business deal where he needed cash, needed it fast. I think it was either a real estate deal or some kind of delicatessen like franchise he bought, needed cash, and they needed, they needed me to collect. It was just after the Super Bowl, so all the bookies were still collecting, and they said, Alonzo, go for it and get this money. And I had to run around like 50 bookies over three days and get their money. And if the guys weren't paying, like the bookies, and I had to go find them and then make them pay. And if they didn't have the money, I had to go find a way to get the money. I had to go pawn something or whatever. So it was like nonstop for three days, man. I just ran around like a madman. And then they put me with crazy Johnny Lafada. And I ended up in an apartment, which was ironic because it was the middle of winter. Thermostat was broken. It was all the way up to 90 or whatever it was. It was the highest thermostat could go, and it was stuck there. So it was like 100 freaking degrees in this in apartment, and I'm dying. We're counting all this money. I'm sweating. The counting machine broke. We had to count it by hand. Kept coming up with different numbers. I was thinking Johnny's going to freaking pop me and take this freaking money. I thought he was that crazy. I knew he was. I'd seen him shoot guys before. I knew. I mean, he, he knows this money's for, for the boss. But like, man, it's a million seven, dude. You could go to freaking Costa Rica and start your life over. You know what I'm saying? Who cares? You know? I thought he's going to, I'm looking over, man. And he was thinking the same thing about me, though. That's a crazy thing. When I asked him later, I said, why did they put me with that crazy ass freaking Johnny? And they're like, well, he said that he's the only one crazier than you. They were worried about you running. I said, you're kidding me, man. Are you really? So anyways, I brought him the money and I got it all three days. I did, I did get like 30, 40 grand though. So that was a nice score. I worked my ass off, barely slept for three days. And I think I got 40 grand out of it. Later on in life, I got deeper into the cocaine game and I robbed some drug dealers of, of some pretty big cocaine weight. And uh, one time me and my uncle and uh, another guy, his, his boy, 
we were on a very elaborate freaking setup, really, where an, a rival dope dealer in, in Miami worked his way into the graces of another drug dealer that was his competition using a third-party emissary. And then they were able to track his movements. It's very elaborate and figure out where he's keeping his weed. And so when he said, I need 600 pounds, we watched where they went to figure it out. And we tracked the weed to a, a garage where you repair your car kind of garage. And we went there and we drove a van through the back, like bay door crashed through and this freaking you know, Dominican dude or whatever he was, he was speaking Spanish. He comes running out the back. He's got no shirt on. He's got a dog, and a dog is freaking big Rottweiler trying to try attack us. So my uncle freaking shoots him. Now the guy freaking freaking out because he just shot his dog, you know, and, and, and the guy's going after my uncle. So my uncle shoots him in the leg. And the whole time, the other dude, Artie's going, shoot this mother effer. And my uncle won't do it. I'm going, what in the F is happening? And no one's supposed to be here. So now we got to search this place because we know the weed's somewhere in there. And it was like, if you ever go to get the oil change and they're in the thing down low and they're like looking up at your car, but they're down there in the basement. We end up getting the weed, 16 freaking totes of weed, 600 pounds, 17 I think it was actually now I think. But anyway, there's eight kilos of coke in there. Of course, I got dicked on that whole operation. I got 20,000 bucks and I think 10 or 11 pounds of weed. No, I think it was 20 pounds of weed. I got 20 pounds and 20, 20 Gs which is peanuts. I got screwed. I mean, I bitched about it to my uncle and he's like, freaking, what do you mean? I said, I did the same work you did, man. I did exactly, I mean, we all did the same thing. Why would I get freaking a fraction of everything? And he's like, man, listen, he's like, this is the way it goes. That's what he said. This is the way it's his famous words. That's the way it goes, man. He's like, one day, you know, one of these days, you know, you'll get a big score and you get to keep it too. He's like, but this is our score. We got it all done. There's a lot of work went behind this. There was a lot of people involved. You know, it's not like that. I, Anyway, he's like, what do you care, man? Yesterday, you didn't have 20,000 bucks and 20 pounds of weed. Today, you do. Shut up and beat it. All right, that's going to have to wrap up part number three. I swear I'm going to try to take care of part number four, and that's going to be it. But All right. I never intended it to go this far, but hasn't it been cool? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Al ever intended. I guarantee his, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, for things to go this far. But, uh... Al's a, a great guy, and uh, I couldn't do this show without the massive cooperation he's given me. I'm just uh, I'm humbled by it, to be honest with you. And uh, he, he's been amazing. I think he intended to give me about an hour and fake a headache in the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, he, he's been he's been super cool. And I, I can't. He's been him. talking to all your old girlfriends. What? <laughs> give you an hour, fake a headache. <laughs> sign off. Sign off now. You rattle, you rattle me for a second. A couple things. I want to get this wrapped up. I know uh, everybody stayed with us. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for all the people that are uh, helping us out and supporting us. Uh, the podcast keeps growing. I couldn't be more pleased with it. And uh, I'd like to thank Say Hello to the Bad Guys podcast. You know, when I was sick and out of it for a while, we had a big gap. And uh, conventional wisdom would tell you that the podcast would plummet. And uh, as I'm watching it, all of a sudden we get this huge bump that just carries all through and i believe what happened is they did a little spot on us for about a minute and a half and talked about us and we got a huge bump from it and uh those guys really they've always been kind of a cousin show of ours but they picked us up when we were down and i'll never forget that so uh, go check them out and say hello to the bad guys with Locke. all right we're gonna close on that note <laughs> good night good night everybody god bless
Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.